Amen. Time of choosing. Thank you, Brother Dave, for that prayer. And that is really, uh, I'll have to say, a, a more appropriate title for this sermon from Esther 4 that's before us tonight. Um, a time of choosing. This is certainly what Esther faces here in this text. And I think that's before us at this time, as was prayed, that this is a, a critical moment in our culture and in our history. So um, let us consider that and keep that in mind as we consider God's word from Esther 4. Please open your Bibles and to Esther 4, as we have said. Um, we've been going through Esther. I think it was two weeks ago in my absence that Pastor Greco preached on Esther 3. Um, and we'll, we'll give a little background to what took place in that chapter because it very much affects the, um, the events and the choosing that we'll see in Esther 4. It was, I was thinking this morning as Reverend King was preaching from Psalm 88 and I had preached the previous son, Sunday from Psalm 69. Both of those are Psalms of Lament and times in which the people of God cried out for relief, for mercy. And here we see, once again, the people of God in the book of Esther in a place of uh, facing, really, a death sentence, a place of great trial, of great tribulation, and we will see their reactions. Esther 4 shows us two individuals, both part of the same ethnic group, Esther, and Mordecai, her uncle. Their lives, of course, have been intertwined, and, and he had a, a strong hand in her upbringing. But now they are separated, and yet their lives are connected. They communicate in this story, but interestingly, they do not meet. So notice, as I read the text, and as we think about this passage, how the tension builds as the messengers, the messenger goes back and forth from Mordecai to Esther and back and forth, and as they consider what is facing them as the people of God. So let us go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon the reading and proclamation of his words. Let us pray. Gracious and merciful God, we need you. Lord, we are an oppressed people in many ways, and Lord, there's, there's ways in which we identify with the people of God Lord, we do not face the death sentence that they do, but spiritually speaking, certainly we do. Lord, show us our need for a mediator this evening, we ask. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned all that had been done, Mordecai tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and ashes and he went out into the midst of the city, and he cried out with a loud and bitter cry. He went up to the entrance of the king's gate, for no one was allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province, province wherever the king command, king's command and his decree reached, there was a great mourning among the Jews with fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's young women... And her eunuchs came and told her the queen was deeply distressed. She sent garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. But he would not accept them. Then Esther called for Hathach, 
one of the king's eunuchs who had been appointed to attend her and ordered him to go to Mordecai to learn what this was and why it was. Hathach went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. And Mordecai told him all that had happened to him and the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay under the king's treasury for the destruction of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for their destruction, that he might show it to Esther and explain to her and command her to go to the king to beg his favor and plead with him on behalf of her people. And Hathach went and told Esther what Mordecai had said. Then Esther spoke to Hathach and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces know that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called, there is but one law to be put to death, except the one to whom the king holds out the golden scepter so that he might live. But as for me, I have not been called to come to the king these 30 days. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Then Esther told them to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf, and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. Then I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Mordecai then went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. We see here, as, as I've mentioned, a reference to the events of chapter 3. If you'll recall, and if you want to, to turn your Bible back a page perhaps, or, or flip your phone to, the, to this previous screen of, of Esther 3, you'll remember and you'll see how that, that Haman had hatched this plan. He, did not, he had been elevated to a place of prominence, King Ahasuerus had elevated him to this place of, prov- uh, of pro- uh, prominence within the city, within the kingdom, and there was a decree that everyone should bow down to Haman. Oh, the mighty Haman, the man, the Agagite, the, the enemy of the Jews, he wanted everyone to bow down to him. Well, Mordecai, being a, a, a good God-fearing Jew, did not do that, and he was angry. And so Haman hatched this plan, and he told the king that he would pay into the royal te- treasury uh, this sizable th- sum, I think it was 10,000 talents of silver, into the royal treasury if the king would issue an edict that would destroy the Jews. Not just Mordecai, not just his family, but all of that people group. So we see, first of all, an ethnic crisis in in. Susa. This, this word came in the name of King Ahasuerus. It was done at the request of Haman. And, and perhaps the king had forgotten what had happened back in chapter 2, if you'll recall, a few weeks previous to that. What did, what did Mordecai do? He had, he had saved the life of the king because he, had, he had, had basically told of those who were plotting against the king for his destruction. 
And he, had, he was one who, was, who we'll see later gains favor because of that. But he literally saved the life of the king. But evidently, King Ahasuerus and chapter 1 paints this picture for us of this king as one who is completely self-centered. One who is only focused upon his own pleasure. So we can see how maybe he is just there to please the one that's next to him. And he certainly did that with Haman. And in the final verses, if you will, look at the final phrase from chapter 3. And it says, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion because of this decree. And we see two different reactions. And I told you we'll see the kind of how things, the, the narrator moves this story along and talks about Mordecai and his response and Esther and his response. So first of all, we want to look at the deep grief of Mordecai and the people of God. What is his reaction? Well, it is very appropriate for a man who is under the sentence of death. He tore his clothes. He put on sackcloth and ashes. He was wailing throughout the city. He went about making sure people knew of the desperate plight of his people. He went to the, the gate of the very gate of the palace and stopped. He, he was not embarrassed to bewail the situation of the people of God. And he was joined in his grief by Jews in every other province. And evidently this... The, the, the culture in uh, the Persian culture was such that they could relay messages across to the far corners of their empire. Remember, it was 127 provinces. It really stretched over the known world at that time. And they evidently had a postal system such that they could send couriers out with this news. And it reached the Jews across this whole land probably particularly those in Judea, those who were seeking to worship God in the way that he had, had chosen for and shown them. And their reaction was similar to Mordecai's. It was fasting, weeping, and lamenting. And it's interesting that this theme in chapter 4, this, this theme of fasting that, that we see later, how Esther calls for a fast, it's in stark contrast to the banqueting that is throughout the rest of the book. And it's interesting what the people of God do under times of desperate need. This is the language of repentance, appeal, and most importantly, prayer. They were in a desperate situation. This was a decree not saying that they could be killed, but that they would be killed. Remember the, the permanence and, the, and the, the, the strictness of the decrees that came from the king. They could not be reversed. They, there was a strict law of the Medes and Persians that, the, this, that this edict, this decree could not be reversed. They were under the sentence of death. And they respond with fasting, lamenting, and weeping. And while, interestingly, Esther, while it does not mention the name of God, it neither, neither does it mention prayer. But all throughout Scripture, and particularly in the Old Testament, we see that the things that are mentioned here in chapter 4 accompany prayer with the people of God. We think of King David when he was crying out and upon his face before God and he was, he was suffering under the wrath of God for his sin and he was facing the death of his child. And in 2 Samuel 12, he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted 
and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. He was crying out in a time of desperation. And further, we see in here references to seeming borrowed language from Joel chapter 2. And that seems to be behind this language in Esther 4, where the prophet Joel says, Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, he pleads, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him. And perhaps that was on Mordecai's mind as he was crying out and upon the people of God as they were considering this desperate plight. But over against that, over against that deep grief that we see expressed by Mordecai and the people of God, we see what really seems to be a shallow grief from Esther. She seems oblivious to the situation of her own people, even though it's not known that it is her people, because she has not yet been revealed. She has kept her identity secret. And it seems that there's a bit of embarrassment on Esther's part, because notice the way she responds to the situation. Here's, here's Mordecai right outside the, the, the city, uh, the, the palace walls, if you will, and, and his, his clothes are rent, and, and he's, he's wailing, he's crying out, there's ashes on his head, he's lamenting. And she thinks, it's, it's almost like she says, hey, something needs to be done about Uncle Mordecai. Let's, let's, let's help him some way. And what does she do? She, she really responds in the way you would expect the empire to respond. To send him something. To send him clothing. It's kind of some retail therapy maybe to say, here, clean yourself up. Take these clothes. Put them on. But Mordecai says, no. No, new clothes will not fix this situation. No. And so he then tells the eunuch that has come to him, and, and he orders him to find out. Um, Esther orders the, the, the eunuch to find out why he's making such a spectacle of himself. And Mordecai responds, and, and we see this response, this back and forth, and he tells, tells the eunuch, the messenger, everything, and even down to the sum of money that Haman has offered to pay to the king's treasury. And he even had a copy of the decree. Evidently, scribes had mass-produced this so it could be heralded out to the far corners of the empire. And Mordecai sends the messenger back to explain the situation to Esther and to command her to go to the king, to beg the king, to plead with the king. On whose behalf does he say? On behalf of her people. And that brings us to our second point. First, it was an ethnic crisis, and, and now we see an identity crisis as Esther has to face, who am I? Questions that, that we consider questions of identity. Who am I? Who are my people? In whom or in what do I believe? And what am I called to do? And Esther really faces all of those questions all at once, it seems, she is on the line. She and her people have been in exile for many years. And as we said, her identity has been hidden. 
She's the one person in the story with two names. Hadassah, the poor Jewish orphan girl, and Esther, known to those around her only as the queen, the king's choice, a beautiful woman enjoying all the privileges of the palace, and at least at times, the favor of the king himself. She has to answer, of course, the question of, who are my people? Notice how Mordecai phrases that question on behalf of her people. And in order to realize who you are, I'll personalize this here, in order for us to realize who we are and who are our people, we have to know what we believe. Esther is forced to do some deep theological reflection here. Does she trust in the gods of the Persian Empire? Does she choose to identify with them? Or does she recognize the one true God of Abraham? Does she trust her life to fate? I say that in quotes, of course. Or does she act on Mordecai's urging and trust in the God of her childhood, the covenant God of Israel? Let me pause here and reflect and and ask you, are you embarrassed to be named as one of the people of God? Do you know who you are? Are you willing to be identified with the people of God? Are you convinced of God's lordship over you? Is he your savior and also your Lord? Ruling supreme in every area of your life? What is your chief end? What is your main purpose? Is it to glorify God and to enjoy him forever? I love the fact that that the, the Westminster divines place that at the very beginning of the shorter catechism because it orients us and it sets our thinking aright. We are here to glorify God. Are you willing to do that even in the face of the enemies of God? Are you convinced of God's sovereignty? Consider Mordecai's reply in verses 12 through 14. And they told Mordecai what Esther had said. Then Mordecai told them to reply to Esther, Do not think to yourself that in the king's palace you will escape any more than all the other Jews. For if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will rise for the Jews from another place, but you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. In Mordecai's message to Esther, he he really holds two ultimate truths in his hand so skillfully. God's sovereignty and our responsibility. Mordecai seems convinced of the preservation of the people of God, but he also recognizes the seriousness of the death threat that is upon them, especially there right in Susa. And he wants to impress upon Esther the seriousness of it and the responsibility that comes with it. But he also recognizes God's sovereignty over it all. It's as if he's saying, just because you are the queen, it doesn't mean that your success and survival is sure. But who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. This leads us to another question of identity, but but really taking it a step further and, and saying, what do we do now that we recognize who we are? Let us consider what Esther does. She calls for a fast. It says 
in um, verse 16, she, she sends the, the messenger to Mordecai, go gather all the Jews to be found in Susa, all those in the citadel, all those there in the, the palace region, and hold a fast on my behalf and do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my young women will also fast as you do. So she calls this fast, this, this voluntary abstinence from food, and in this case, water as well, for, for the special need, for, the, for a, this need in a time of crisis. Fasting is something that, that I think we need to learn more about. I know for myself, I certainly need, more, need to learn more about it. Fasting is, is something that strengthens prayer. It gives us time and space to pray. It strips us of earthly comforts. It, it helps us to focus upon heavenly things. It allows us to set our hearts and minds on spiritual things. And those things are often less likely to occur when our bellies are full. It expresses grief. It helps to fuel repentance. Fasting helps us to be humble before our God. It reminds us of our spiritual poverty. As, as we suffer the pangs of physical hunger, it should remind us of our spiritual hunger that we need more of. It helps us to seek God more earnestly in times of, of national crisis and disaster as we see in our text. It helps us to dedicate ourselves and it can, as it did for Esther, give confidence and boldness to our obedience, especially in the face of great danger. And that leads us to what Esther did after that is she acted leads to bold action. She says that she will go. She, she prays and then she acts. As, as uh, Pastor King mentioned the quote from John Bunyan, um, and, and I, I trust I don't mess it up, David, where, where he says that, that, that we, we can certainly do more than pray, but we should not do anything until we pray, until we really pray. And that's what we see Esther doing here, calling for this fast, crying out to God, and then acting based upon what she knew was her responsibility. She says, I will go to the king, though it is against the law, and if I perish, I perish. Fasting and prayer are the first things that she does, but not the only thing. And this is a defining moment for Esther. Notice as we go forward through this book how, um, how it, it appears that Esther's relationship with Mordecai and, and really with the king and those around her has changed. This is a defining moment for her. We now see in the final verse that Mordecai is doing what she commanded. And this is just one of the many reversals in the book of Esther. So we have seen this ethnic crisis. We've seen this crisis of identity that, that Esther has had and how she comes through it and how she, she is, seeks to follow God and, and do what is required of her. And we can't help but see in Esther 4 the need for a mediator. As we've said, the people of God were, were lost. They were under a death sentence. They were hopeless without something being done to save them. This was an irreversible decree of death upon them. Yet Mordecai believed that God would provide. 
And it is interesting in God's providence that we read Genesis 22 tonight because I, I, I was meditating upon this and thinking about Mordecai's response and how it sounded somewhat like Abraham's response as he was going up Mount Moriah there with his son Isaac and said that God will provide a sacrifice. And both of these episodes point so vividly to Christ. And Esther does too, because she steps in to be that mediator. She steps in to be that one that stands in the gap. She steps in that one that is willing to risk her life to save her people. And we see in this the cost of mediation. They needed a mediator. Their situation was deadly. She saw this. She realized the cost. She knew that death was a real possibility for those who go into the king uninvited. We are under a death sentence here this evening, people of God. If you are outside of Christ, you are facing a death sentence. And your only hope is through the mediation of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the glorious good news of the gospel is that Christ is our mediator. Christ has paid the penalty of sin. He has made a way of salvation for those who come to him in faith and repentance, trusting completely in him. We see in the Lord Jesus, of course, a better mediator than Esther could ever be. She stepped in and she said, if I perish, I perish. She realized the real possibility of death. And Jesus said, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Then it is soon seen that the cup would not pass, that he was to drink it all. Jesus faced not only the possibility of death, but the certainty of death, knowing that he would not only die, but that in his suffering and death, he would suffer the full wrath of God upon sinners for sin. In our place condemned, he stood. He sealed our pardon with his blood. Hallelujah. What a Savior. And in the fullness of time, for such a time as this, in such a time that we need a redeemer, that we need a savior, that we are hopelessly lost without a savior. Jesus came, God sent his son, and Jesus came as a sacrifice for our sins and mine. Esther 4 points us, as so many Old Testament passages do, points us beyond itself to the point where salvation was won. And it calls us to a decisive moment of our own. So I ask you, if you are outside of Christ, will you join the people of God? Will you come to Christ in faith, trusting in him as your only hope for salvation? He is our only hope. Receive him now as your only hope. Let us pray.